Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Uh, I have a couple of sort of late-breaking, uh, not late-breaking necessarily, <clears throat> but some some things I want to get to before we Lay them get, down. get to the meat of the show. First of all, there was a uh, sort of Russian hacking organization that was uh, uh, hit with like a criminal and civil charges by the D- Justice Department today. Did you see the name of this uh, hacking collective or whatever? No, I didn't. They're called Evil Corp. Evil Corp. <laughs> Evil Corp. You know, we're two on the nose at this point. Well, you know, it's funny. Okay, so have you ever seen uh, Mr. Robot? Yeah, sure. I lasted one episode of Mr. Robot, and one of the reasons is they work for a tech company in that show. It's called E Corp, I think. Yeah. Yes. And as a, a as a way of, like, you know, speaking ill of their employer, they call it Evil Corp. And I remember thinking... This is like really stupid writing. Like the, the, the idea that like, oh, this is like, how do we know the company's bad? Well, the employees call it Evil Corp. This is like an actual 2019 thing. does do you, feel like the writers have gotten lazy. But yeah. They're just breaking out just sort of genre tropes at Definitely. this point. But do you object to Avatar in the same reason? Because the whole thing they wanted there was unobtainium. Unobtainium, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's a fair point. Um, so Evil Corp. Whatever they're doing, they also got hit with sanctions today. We'll see how that goes. I also wanted to give uh, probably probably the last update on the saga of our friend Duncan Hunter. Oh, that guy. The Republican, the vaping congressman, uh, who then became known as the uh, campaign swindling congressman. The only congressman who always looks like he's just about to miss a vote because he wants to keep playing Xbox. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> correct. That's well stated by you. He uh, was hit with an indictment. In August 2018, a long time ago, that he had sort of uh, misappropriated about a quarter of a million dollars worth of campaign funds for his personal uses. He took his family to Italy. Uh, he did a bunch of things yeah, uh, that were then, sort of imp- or what was alleged to have done that. We've talked about him a couple times on the show, and one of our uh, updates a while back was that he then blamed his wife for everything and yeah, said yeah. it was her fault yeah. and he was using these the, things that happened. And there were mistresses involved and all sorts of things going yeah, on. Yeah, there was there, there was lots of stuff sort of on the periphery. He famously in the indictment, there's a line he told his campaign treasurer, "Oh, are you trying to are you trying to create a paper trail on me?" which is in fact the entire point of like uh, having a treasurer, but in any case. So he initially pled not guilty to those charges. Right. Uh, and he's been fighting the prosecution, it's been very contentious. Uh, this week though, on Tuesday, um he switched uh, he said, actually, I'm going to plead guilty um, with no real uh, explanation, just kind of uh, made a short court appearance and entered a guilty plea. Um, so that kind of, you know, absent uh, sentencing, that kind of brings uh, brings us to the end of that saga. Um, the only comment his office made is that Hunter, uh, quote, is going to discuss next steps with Republican leadership. He's still serving. Oh, uh, right. We'll see what kind of punishment gets doled out. But um, that's sort of... Uh, it appears to be the end of that saga for the vaping, swindling congressman. There you go. Those were some really good updates. Um, I want to tell everybody next that we are going to have an all-host show today. Oh, yes. We've got um, some good news stories to get to. And then for what is sort of our main segment today, we're going to talk about holiday parties. Holiday party they're, season They're always problematic for lawyers, for companies who have a lot of tips about what to do and not to do. And we've got some really funny stories about some of the, the worst offenders at holiday parties. A lot yes. of lampshades on heads. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Things of that nature. Yeah, we're getting out ahead of this before our own company holiday parties. So we'll see what lessons we take away. Well, as I think we made this joke last time we talked about holiday party no-nos. It was like, is it no-nos or is it like a checklist of uh, to-dos? <laughs> uh, but in any case, uh, we do have some news to go over. Uh, Bill, I think you want to start us off here? Yeah, we're uh, interesting case filed this week. We, we talk a lot about companies 
and individuals suing each other. We talk about uh, cities suing other state governments, federal governments. We talk about the federal government battling with states. We very, very infrequently talk about two cities suing each other. Sure. That's what we're talking about this week. Yeah, that's unusual because they usually don't have any beefs with each other. There's not a lot of interaction in that way. Yeah. So earlier this week, uh, the city of Newark, New Jersey, filed a lawsuit in federal court against New York City. Uh, the, The issue is this program that New York has implemented that has seen thousands of homeless people being relocated uh, from New York to other parts of the country, most notably Newark, New Jersey. Um, that's an, I mean, it's an interesting thing to have a lawsuit over. What is that? How does the program work? I mean, it's like sort of a relocation um, effort. Yeah, it's called uh, special, the Special One-Time Assistance Program, or SOTA. Mm-hmm. Um, it was set up by Mayor Bill de Blasio in an effort to... He, Bill de Blasio ran on these ideas that he was going to help the homeless population and reduce some of the the, the problems that New York faces. New York has 80,000 uh, homeless people currently. And um, so this program was set up and it provides a full year's rent for someone um, upfront if they are willing to move out of the shelter system and into an actual apartment. Um more than a third of those vouchers have been used to relocate people to actual apartments in New York City. Um, but the rest of them have been used to relocate folks outside of uh, the five boroughs. Um, the the most popular place to send these people, I mean, they've been sent all over the country, but the most popular place has been, um, has been Newark after New York City itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1,200 families have been moved uh, across the river to Newark. I mean, on the face of it, this sounds like it would be a good thing. They're giving a full year's rent. People are are now yeah. in places that are more permanent than being in the sh- in the shelter system. So, what's gone wrong here? Yeah, the devil is sort of in the details, as always. Um, the 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 idea that that Newark is is pushing the problem that Newark has with this is that they say that Newark is just sort of pressuring people to move into really sort of unlivable substandard apartments in other places um, as a way to quickly relieve the burden on its own shelter system, which is Mm -hmm. itself very expensive. Um, Newark says that New York knows that this program basically doesn't work, that people, uh, one year of of rent subsidy doesn't get you through. Most people will not be self-sustaining after a year and mm. um, will be vulnerable again at that at that point to homelessness. And um, so they know that the program is going to fail and that they're just doing it. They're shipping them elsewhere so that when it does fail, they're no longer in New they're York. They're not in New York City anymore. It's someone else's problem. Exactly. So, um, uh, so the, the the lawsuit says that not only is this hurting um, the homeless people themselves, and not only is it burdening Newark's uh, social services and its businesses and everything else, that um, it's been a boon to sh- really shady landlords in Newark and in other cities that. Um, Folks understand that this system is happening and then they can get this full year uh, right. of, of rent from New York without a ton of um, uh, oversight and that they can get this money, not do a whole lot for these fairly vulnerable people. And then when those people move out after a year, because, again, like I said, that Newark believes that this that the 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 evidence shows that most people are not ready mm-hmm. to be on their own after a year that um uh, that they just do it again, and they they yeah. So they're... there's like no market pressure to improve these exactly. like slum style apartments. Exactly. They all just stay bad. So Newark uh, to fight this problem, they they passed ordinances that essentially made SOTA illegal in Newark. They said that it's illegal to 
bring uh, needy people into Newark and to it bans landlords from accepting more than a month's rent uh, when it's subsidized by someone else or something else. Mm -hmm. Um, But the city says that New York is still continuing to send folks to Newark. So what is, I mean, it's a very, it's a uniquely structured program and it of course leads to a uniquely structured lawsuit. What are the, what are the, sort of the grounds, what, what is, what does Newark have to stand on here? Yeah. I, and that, and that, that's what I thought was the most interesting thing about this, where you look at this program and you look at the facts and you go, oh, that's a, you know, that's a problem. That's a thing Newark might not like, mm-hmm. but it, figuring out how exactly one would get into court, I think is always a very interesting question that yeah. we sure. talk about a lot. Um, so the claims fall into two different buckets. One is that the program violates the Dormant Commerce Clause, which for the folks who didn't go to law school, that's it, it basically bars states from doing stuff that discriminates against residents of, of – discriminates against interstate commerce. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that that has been sort of applied to is the idea that you can't unfairly – benefit your own residents or disadvantage other states' residents. So the idea here is that this is burdening this other city and and sort of extending yourself beyond the boundaries of your own border and sort of going into that interstate realm in a way that violates the Dormant Commerce Clause. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing is that Newark says that this is essentially a uh, public nuisance, that, um, that New York knew it was moving people who would become homeless again, and it was just doing it outside of its own borders, knowing that that would be a burden on on Newark's mm-hmm. uh, uh, systems. The quote, defendants' actions caused and shall continue to cause an immeasurable amount of harm to Newark's residents, businesses, and the general public by placing any number of people in critical danger of becoming homeless in a place where they lack support. Well, I mean, that, that well sums up Newark's side of it. But New York obviously put this program in place for a reason, and it's continued. So what are what are they saying about it? How are they going to defend themselves? Yeah, the immediate reaction from uh, – this was from uh, de Blasio's uh, deputy press secretary. Quote, homeless families and individuals have the right to seek housing where they can afford it, and attacking their ability to do so amounts to nothing short of income-based discrimination. That was a quote from Avery Cohen, who is the press secretary for de Blasio, um, in a statement to the Star-Ledger that – uh, the Newark newspaper. Um, uh, and then we saw, we've seen since this lawsuit was filed that apparently uh, the the Newark mayor, um, Roz Baraka, and uh, de Blasio are going to sit down and try to work this out. So it may be a situation where we quickly see a settlement that these two, you know, these are two Democrats, they're two very progressive Democrats, that maybe yeah. they will work something out amongst themselves to fix this. But um, it, it's an interesting question because, like I said, these People have not only been relocated to Newark, they've been relocated to cities all across the country, many of whom have had a problem with this this system for a lot of the same reasons that Newark has. So if this lawsuit succeeds, we may see other places bring similar challenges against soda. So I want to keep us talking about another newly filed lawsuit. Mm -hmm. This one led to some pretty shocking headlines. it is about George Zimmerman suing the family of Trayvon Martin. That's the teenager he shot eight years ago, asking for more than a hundred million dollars. Yeah, I saw this one bouncing around uh, the web, and it, you know, um, it was a very. I mean, this was like a incredibly closely watched, you know, um, tragic event, and then yes. of course the legal saga that came after it. Don't know if we need a lot of reminder on that, but for pe- people don't remember what 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 happened here with yeah. the main players. I think most people will recall this one, but just so we're all dealing with this, this the same set of facts here for the rest of the story, 
Trayvon Martin was a 17-year-old African-American teenager, and he was walking home from a convenience store heading back to his father's fiancé's house when Zimmerman, who was a member of the like um, community watch in that neighborhood, saw him, called the police about him, moments after placing that phone call, shot him fatally in the chest. So Zimmerman called the shooting um, an act of self-defense, and he was acquitted on all of the charges that were eventually brought in the trial against him. The case was, like you said, Alex, it was hugely impactful. We saw all kinds of fallout after that. It really changed the culture in a lot of ways because it brought a lot of things to light that had been simmering under the surface in America. So it actually launched the Black Lives Matter movement. It Mm -hmm. drew attention to obviously racial tensions but also gun violence in America. Yeah, well and Florida had the had the stand your ground law right. which was which was obviously under the microscope at, yeah. at that point. Uh, Obama like made a statement about it when it wasn't like common for you know it's just like one person got shot. It, right. it rose to that level. It was that big of a deal. Yeah, it really was it's hard to overstate how impactful this one event mm-hmm. and this one case were. And notably, after Trayvon passed away, his mother, Sabrina Fulton, created a Trayvon Mountain Foundation in an effort to end gun violence and talk about these issues. So it's it's been ongoing in our culture. But so we know that Zimmerman uh, was acquitted. So what is he suing about now? What's the what's the claim yeah, it's a sort of a surprising lawsuit, guys. He says he was the victim of a conspiracy, malicious prosecution, and defamation. So his lawyer announced this lawsuit along with um, a documentary, which has now been scuttled, but the documentary was called The Trayvon Hoax. So you can see that a lot of this is designed to catch maximum attention. It's yeah. provocative. Lawsuit. Yeah. Um, so basically, here's what was alleged in the suit. Zimmerman and his lawyer say that there was a key witness during the prosecution. Her name's um, Rachel Gentile. And they say she lied about being on the phone with Trayvon Martin right before he was shot. They say it was actually another girl who is named Brittany Diamond Eugene, who was um, Rachel Gentile's Mm half-sister. They alleged that the lawyer for the Martin family, along with some people that knew about this, concocted a script for this testimony and fabricated it all to smear Zimmerman. So that's the conspiracy they're talking about. The suit accuses all sorts of people being in on it. It's Trayvon's parents, their attorney, Benjamin Krupp, prosecutors, state authorities. Um, They say that all of these people went along with this ruse of this testimony and that it, they should have known about witness fraud and obstruction of justice. That was was part of this. It was just, I mean, it's just so interesting because I mean, I know, I mean, whether or not, I mean, we'll see what happens to the case, but it was just like, it is, it is like, like I said, provocative. I mean, it's extremely, you know, it's interesting behavior. Let's put it that way from someone who like was acquitted. I mean, whatever, right. if they think there's a problem with this testimony or whatever, how the case was presented, it was presented to a jury and they yeah. acquitted him. So, I mean, you know, so there's that's a, like the whole thing. There's a few things to unpack here about yeah. some of the um, underlying things behind the suit. One thing that I think is notable also named in this suit, um, was the book publisher HarperCollins. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that's because they recently published a book by the Martin family attorney, the guy named Crump. His book was called Open Season, and it's about violence toward black people. Mm-hmm. So that may be part of what's going on here, that okay. there's ongoing publicity about the Trayvon Martin case. So that's part of the defamation aspect of this suit. Uh, and the lawyer who filed the case is also... Uh... Very well known. Let's get into that. So the lawyer is Larry Kleeman. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because 
I mean, I think controversial is a pretty mild term for his his history. He's the guy that founded the conservative watchdog group called Judicial Watch. He's filed all sorts of suits, some just to get discovery about various things. He very rarely wins in court, mm-hmm. but he files them to uh, call attention to various societal issues and to get discovery on some famous people. So yeah. ones that he's filed that you might have heard about, um, he filed one of the birther lawsuits against President Obama saying that he couldn't hold office because he's not a natural born citizen. Yeah. He's also represented conspiracy theorists like Jerome Corsi. And Clayman himself has gotten in legal ethics trouble a few times over the years, mm-hmm. but most recently related to trying to pressure a female client into having a relationship with him. So he's got a very checkered history. Yeah. I mean, the the case was just filed this week. I mean, what is is there you know, a sophisticated intelligentsia on this? I mean, do we think it's going anywhere? What have, what have people been saying? It seems very much to be about the attention that it's that's drawing to these issues. It doesn't seem like there's going to be a lot of traction because so far we haven't seen a lot of evidence about this conspiracy. It's just all allegations right now. We could be proven wrong as the yeah, case sure. carries on. But here's what the Martin family and their attorney said in response. Zimmerman, quote, continues to display a callous disregard for everyone but himself, revictimizing individuals whose lives were shattered by his own misguided actions. He would have us believe that he is the innocent victim of a deep conspiracy, despite the complete lack of any credible evidence to support his outlandish claims. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in, in when it comes to defamation cases like this of like the the idea of anti-slap laws, which is, you know, you, you, you disincentivize people from bringing these cases that are, that are potentially, uh, you know, you know, a little flimsy, and, and I'm not saying necessarily that this one is right yeah, now. Yeah, but the the response from the family, I mean, that's the the that's the the point of those kind of laws right. is to make it so that if you do file cases like that, and they do um, they do turn out to be about attention or about causing nuisance for someone else, that you can get them quickly tossed out. You can get your attorney's fees. So um, just to put things in the in the broader context of, of defamation cases. Yeah, I think that's really good context to have. And we'll have to wait and see if more develops in the record for this one. But um, it's certainly dominating some headlines right now and is going to be a suit to watch. Today for our main segment, we want to talk about some uh, nightmares before Christmas was what the headline on this story was. It was written by our our senior employment reporter, Braden Campbell. And what he did was talk to a bunch of attorneys and ask them for some cautionary tales about holiday parties. It is holiday party season. Yeah, I got on the subway the other night and it just... S-Z-N. the train reeked of booze. It was like it was like 10 p.m. and you could tell it was just people leaving holiday parties. It's beginning to look a lot like holiday party season. You know, um, bringing up booze is great right off the top because a lot of these stories are going to be about that. So just yes. so people know what we're going to talk about, um, the three of us each took a few of our favorites from this story, um, and it's stuff that actual employment attorneys yes. told Braden that they have um, encountered with their clients. So these are some real world examples of what can really go wrong. And the point of telling this is not just that they're really interesting anecdotes in here, but also just to sort of exemplify what we always talk about with holiday parties, how they can get companies in some real legal hot water. Yes. Well, it's true. It is funny that you mentioned that, I mean, alcohol is sort of the through line through, it, through it all of really them. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. not always, which yeah. we'll talk about later. Uh, but yes, it is a, it is yeah, a, well, a let, prime suspect. Let yeah. me kick us off with a booze-related problem. Sure. So 
The first story I want to talk about comes from a Jackson Lewis principal named Michelle Phillips. So she told Braden the story of um, a client who was who had a holiday dinner for some workers. Some of them had a few too many. And at one point, one of the male colleagues turned to a manager and said, this is a quote, I'd like to do your wife. <laughs> See what <laughs> we were Bill and I were t- we were talking about this yesterday at the meeting. I was like, I can't remember the last time I heard someone sincerely use do, do. For, for intercourse. I'm going to do your what? Well, look, there's a lot of crasser ways to say it, so I'm glad they chose this one because we can actually say it on the podcast. Well, it also may have been that that, that this attorney in relaying the story to sure. Braden was self-censoring. That's, who that's could, true. Who could, sure. who could say? We don't really know. Well, the the crux of the story, though, is too much alcohol. Someone says this this thing. The manager got really mad, of course. Uh-huh. Um, some colleagues separated the two men and... Um, it was looked like it was going to go to a physical fight, and they got separated. So at this point, some coworkers did try to calm down the manager and walk him back to his hotel room. But about five minutes later, he went downstairs, and he actually did punch that guy. <laughs> and to me, actually the most interesting part is what happened next to this guy. So we are in a time now where many employment attorneys would say uh, any sort of physical violence, you should fire the person. Yeah, yeah. In this particular instance... The manager was actually given a final warning, and he had to go through sensitivity training. But it just shows you how how easily things can get out of hand in a physical way when yeah. there's too much drinking at a at a company. That's event. wild to not get yeah. fired for that. You punch, punch the guy in the head, and then oh, okay, we'll go to some classes. Uh, but whatever. <laughs> in any case, uh, I will. I don't know how that turned out. I'm sure it was fine. Um, uh, you know, a lot of these things are about the whole point of this of Braden writing the story. Um, was to illustrate steps that you might take, or, or rather, you know, things you can do to prevent things like this from happening. Right. There was one instance, though, uh, that he wrote about. Um, basically, a company almost swung the pendulum too far in the other direction. You know, there's always this discussions like, you know, you can have a cash bar instead of open bar, right. and maybe you do it for... You know, maybe you just do it for an hour instead of for three hours into the night or whatever. And we've also talked about things like maybe you invite spouses, which will keep people a little more in line. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah we've yeah. talked about that before. Okay. Well, in any case, uh, this uh, this story was related to Braden by a uh, an attorney named Jonathan Siegel, who works at Dwayne Morris. And he was talking about a client of his um, that basically just took all precautions to the point that it actually went in a sort of a backwards way. Uh, this is this way he told Braden, they being the, the client, they eliminated every aspect of the holiday season. They called it a December celebration. Uh, the company avoided a, uh, any references to Christmas uh, or any other holiday and didn't serve alcohol. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the thing, like you said, What's the point at that point? Well, see, he Siegel had a good line. He told Brady, he was like, "It was it was sterility rather than civility, hmm. and it was a buzzkill." He said, like, apparently, it completely torpedoed morale. Oh, of uh, course. So people are trying to, you know, it, you know, we don't want people to like punch people in the head, like right. what happened in the story you told. But they they neutered the thing to the point of like people were like really upset. There was a lot of resentment. Yeah, like why are we even doing this? It was like, with, you know, whether we're talking about, you know being inclusive of holidays and things like that, like that's a whole other separate thing. It was like, there can be moderation in these things, and I, I guess the point of that. Some of the prevailing wisdom among employment attorneys for companies thinking about how to handle that somewhat tricky thing of like, do we call it a Christmas party? What do we do? Mm-hmm. Is to just be inclusive, not to take all of the holidays out. But like, if you have a Christmas tree, also have a menorah, maybe have a nod to right. Kwanzaa involved. Like, to sure. just add more, not take away everything. Yeah, so I mean... 
you know, I'll see you at the next December party or whatever they call it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually want to stick with Jonathan Siegel because he told another story that's the next one I want to talk about. Um, I apparently just want to talk about all the booze-related problems, guys. Yeah. So it can also really up the risk of sexual harassment, not just physical violence, like my previous well, and th- story. And that's the thing too. We we're like we're, we're we're joking around because it is there are fun stories that come out of situations like this with the, with the holidays and with booze and with everything else. But like there are very serious issues underlying a lot of this, and, yeah. and we don't mean to underplay that. And I yeah. think part of it too is that people often view a holiday party as completely um, removed from the workplace. Yeah. But you're still with your colleagues. It's still a work event. and if Sometimes your lawyer's there. That's right. <laughs> and if everybody approached things more from a, hol- you know, it being not just a party, but being a work event, Although some you of the stuff wouldn't happen. You don't want to convey that by having it at the office. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But, uh... <laughs> well, back to this one. So we hear about sexual harassment in workplaces all the time. Mm-hmm. And it probably comes up even more in the context of drinking at a party. So... Um, Jonathan Siegel told this story. There was a group of male executives who got really drunk at a client's hotel holiday party that was being held in a hotel. They wanted to keep the party going and move it up to hotel rooms. They invited a bunch of junior female employees to come along. The women declined, and then at least one of them reported at the executives for this ask of them. And a bunch of the executives were fired. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... Not a great move to forget that you are in the work setting. So Siegel, who, again, had a really good good quote for this one, too. He said, in my view, a hotel room is better called a bedroom. Executives shouldn't be asking employees to join them in one. Yeah, that's some real, I mean, that's, uh, and I don't mean it as an insult, but like, that's some real lawyer vision of that. I mean, it was like, you you were talking about the, the distinctions, like, even when you're at your work holiday party, you're still at, you're, you can envision yourself basically at work. Right. And it's like, this is the same, like, you can, you can try and spin all you want the idea of continuing the party back at your room, but it's a bedroom. Like, yes. There, there are certain things that are entailed with that if you're going to your lower, your female subordinates. Yeah, and then um, there's one more quote I really liked about this one that sort of caps off both of the stories I told about alcohol-related stuff. Jack Daniels is not a defense for predatory conduct and they paid the ultimate price, meaning the men that got fired. Well, and we, and you know, we, we talk about this stuff like here's this thing you can do to make it a safer environment. Here's this thing you can do. Ultimately, the, the, the thing that will really get the message across is if people do things like this, then they yeah. are fired. That right. They are, you know, that, right. that um, it's, it's uh, and, and I think that that has begun to change, that people are more sensitive to these kind of things. And, um, you know, maybe 25 years ago, that wouldn't get you fired. Sure. Uh, next, I want to talk about uh, we've, as we've said several times already, um, alcohol is certainly uh, uh, ser- served at a lot of uh, holiday parties, and it can be a contributor to a lot of these things we're talking about. But it's not the only thing. Uh, the uh, there was an Ogletree Deacons attorney named Amanda Couture who told Braden about um, a couple of uh, a couple of clients or a couple of uh, people who worked at a client of hers who didn't who didn't adhere to the uh, to the classic meme. Illustrated in cross stitch and neon signs across New York City, please don't do coke in the bathroom. Ugh. This was uh, it was a party, it was a holiday party some years ago. Uh, her, uh, uh, Couture's client was in the sales industry. You know these 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 sales sales bros getting after it, doing whatever. Um, as as she described it to Braden, they had their holiday party at sort of a bar restaurant combo, and well into the evening, one of the younger employees comes out of the men's room, walks up to their manager, and says. There are people doing cocaine. 
Wow. <laughs> Fairly straightforward. Wow. Which I mean, what pretty a- low bar, right? Like, just don't do coke at work. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I mean, this this one's pretty open and shut. <laughs> this is pretty open and shut. Um, and so you know, I mean, th- there are various you know. Depending on the culture that you have at your office, even when you don't have sure. the party, can sort of, you know, speak to that and all that. It, it, this actually reminded me when I read it. it reminded me of that uh, the opening scene of American Psycho when he comes back to the table and he yeah. says they don't have a good bathroom to do coke in. Um, that was not a problem for these guys. Um, but uh, she had a little to the point I was saying about company culture. Uh, Couture told Braden, she was like, if there's a half dozen people doing coke at your party, I'm not sure that makes a difference, but you should try and get out ahead of it, which is fair. And I mean, she's making a good point. It's I like, mean, I there's only so many steps you can take to curb people's vices. And I assume that much like the last story we told, all those people got fired. Well, right. Well, yeah. And that's, and that's, that's the difference too, is like, it's, I guess, a common courtesy to have, whether you're doing a cash bar or open bar, the company is providing you with alcohol, which you have to modulate, mm-hmm. whatever. I've yet to see a corporate-sponsored uh, cocaine party. Uh, True. I mean, I'm sure they've happened. I don't want to act, be like a babe in the woods here. But yeah, that was that was what was at play uh, regarding there. So yeah, I teased it earlier that we're, we had one we had one more story uh, took place <laughs> at a workplace. Yeah, um, it's funny we we did discuss at times. Uh, Lynn, our our uh, great head of HR here at Law Three Hundred and Sixty, we we discussed the idea of. Uh, whether or not our office Christmas party should be in the office. It was ultimately not not a choice that we ever made. But here's a good story for why maybe that's not a great idea. Um, the, and this involves the idea that, you know, everyone should know not to drive home from a from a office Christmas party when you've had too much to drink. Right. Um, but but that, it's a good rule not to not to get in your car at the party itself. <laughs> um the, the same Ogletree Deacons attorney, um, Amanda Couture, relayed this story to Braden. Um, it was a construction industry company uh, that was having their their holiday party on site at the at the the, the headquarters, and um, one of their employees got into the company truck. And um, I think we all know where this is going. He drove directly into a wall and caused twenty thousand dollars worth of <laughs> wow. worth of damage to the building. Wow, it's amazing. Um, I, 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 you know, it, it wasn't specified in the story like how much damage twenty thousand dollars is. I don't, I don't know. I mean, was it? I not, mean, I don't know what kind of position right. this. I this will firm point is out in. that it was specified in the story that um, the worker himself. I mean, it's not. No one died in the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He just caused a lot of mayhem. Yeah. So, I mean, the key takeaway here is uh, that it, again, it's on the company to be more proactive about things like this. It's 2019. Get your employees Ubers. Like, get a right. you know have have if you're going to be serving. We have workarounds. If this. you're going to be serving a ton of alcohol in a place, I mean, New York City's easier because we have mass transit here. But if you're going to be getting all your employees toasted i mean get a get a bus that can drive people That's home right. get a get an uber it's the kind of thing that a company should know and should be doing if they've put themselves in that situation a lot of interesting anecdotes in our story about holiday parties, but we have one last story to tell. It is for our offbeat section today. Bill, I think you've, you've got it for us. I'm just going to start us off with the headline. Union Pacific must rehire worker who pooped on train connector. 
And now this sounds like a holiday party. Well, I I was going to say, you know what? We didn't talk about any sort of scatological issues, anything of that nature. Yeah. I'm kind of glad we didn't talk about it, but it it is intriguing to know how this this happened. Only now, at the end, do you understand. So... Uh, so okay, so uh, there was this Union Pacific uh, employee. He uh, went to the bathroom on a the the thing that connects to train cars is called the train knuckle. Mm-hmm. Um, a federal judge l- ruled uh, just before Thanksgiving that that he um, could not be fired for that and should be given his job back. That is surprising. Um, can we get a little? I have a lot of questions. Let's get to some of my questions. Yeah. Um, was this an accident or was it on purpose? Feels like a little bit of A, a little bit of B. Um, so this well, guy's no, that, name... that makes a big difference, though. If it's an accident, I feel bad for the for guy. Sure. If it's on purpose, then ew. For sure. So his name was Matthew Liebsack, and uh, he's worked for Union Pacific for, for 18 years. And um, so uh, the quote from... Actually, this is actually in the ruling. Um, uh, While at work, Liebsack defecated on a train car knuckle threw feces-covered toilet paper out the locomotive window and informed his manager that he had left, quote, a present, end quote, for him. Ah. Liebsack did this even though the train restroom was only a few feet away. This would suggest oh, premeditation, okay. Amber. I okay. mean, I, I'm, I'm, I, this is conjecture on my part, but the yeah, saddest... That, well, the, sorry, you, go ahead, No, nah, I mean, I, just when you say, uh, I've left a present for you, that feels pretty <laughs> yeah. on purpose. It's, uh, I just love the judge lamenting that the bathroom was just so close. <laughs> uh, the, the quote concludes with, Liebsack's co-workers cleaned the feces from the knuckle using bottled water and paper towels. Oh, that's... T- Somebody it, had to clean it. Oh, That's terrible. Someone someone had a tough day at work. Ugh. Multiple people seemingly. Okay, yeah, right. Wait, so why why couldn't we fire this guy? So he was terminated, but his union fought back and ultimately won. Um, an arbitrator ruled that he should have gotten a lighter penalty, that there were mitigating circumstances. He had never been disciplined or had very lightly ever been disciplined, and he had had recent marital problems and some other things. So <laughs> I, I don't mean to laugh, but that's a funny thing to read in this context. <laughs> marital problems. And then he Things weren't going po- Pooping on the knuckle. I mean, that's, that's, that's I mean, just if I hand, know. That just goes hand in hand. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, but the judge, okay, so the so the union, you know, fought back, and the judge, like, what what did he, how did the judge sort of view, you know, when, when we're having this dispute between? Are you asking if the, the judge, yeah. if the judge poo pooed the arbitrator's yeah. decision? Yeah, yeah, it's one hundred percent the question. Um, thank you for asking. Uh, so, um, the I mean, so basically, the judge said that like I'm going to affirm this because there is X standard, and the arbitrator said X, and I need to affirm it certain but, level of deference to the arbitrator but was like bewildered by by the decision um he he, he said that he was troubled with the case um uh, Me upon, too. upon reviewing <laughs> it he was puzzled uh how the arbitration board could reach the con- that conclusion um th- that that this guy's actions of purposefully defecating on the knuckle of his train and leaving his feces for others to clean up somehow did not constitute conduct worthy of upholding his termination. You know, I'm really on board with this judge. I'm also troubled and puzzled about this turning out that way. I love the idea of a judge being like, look, I'm going to rule a certain way, but I I shouldn't have to say this, but (laughs) I would love if you would... It just going forward, not poop on the train knuckle. Yeah, you know, shorter version of the judges. That would be re- yeah. terrific. It, he's, he's basically saying we live in a society. 
And let's I, and let's bear that. Well, in mind. okay, but that's a good. Sorry, go ahead, Amber. <laughs> I like that the judge is making sure that like no one confuses that he thinks it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah, just yeah. wants his record very clear. To yeah. be clear, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I am bound. I am bound. Yeah. To so there was one good way. concluding quote. Quote. As a train engineer, Mr. Liebsack operates large pieces of equipment through public spaces in our country. In his closing statement at the arbitration hearing, Mr. Liebsack's attorney even noted that Mr. Liebsack, quote, transports some of the most hazardous of train cargoes. That's putting well, it lightly, I mean, I that's, that's, that's an understatement. <laughs> uh, um, the quote continues, Upon being given such an important charge that can impact the well-being and safety of the public, Mr. Liebsack should be expected to have better judgment than which he exhibited. All right. Fair point. Yeah. All of that's true. And I actually have to use the bathroom right now, and I don't want to go in the studio, so I think we should be out of here. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let's, let's it's time to go. I want to thank you guys for being with me today. Thanks, Bill. It's been a pleasure. And Alex. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our contributing reporters this week, Braden Campbell and Adam Lidget. And music for the show that comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you love listening to our show, we'd love to hear from you. Take a minute to leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. That's a big part of how people find our show. And if you want to know more about any of the things we've talked about today, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you next week.